All right, well, normally we'd let our kids head out this time, but uh, what we do here, for those who are visiting, is the first Sunday of the month. Uh, we have our kids stay here with us the whole service, so if you're looking for like some low voice to drown you out when you sleep, like I'm, um, and these kids can help keep you awake, so it's a good thing. And while we do that, uh, we believe that we're a church family, uh, and as much as parents may want to sometimes, you can't really just put your kid away and and close the door. Uh, it's not healthy. We want our kids to be around. Uh, we want them to be present. And then that we want our kids to see other people who are following the Lord, worshiping the Lord together. Um, and so our, our analogy is, is pretty simple. When a child is young, you know, one and two years old, you don't just talk to them in words that only they understand, right? You don't just make the sounds of a baby, but you use adult words. You're calling them up to something. And so by having them here present with us, we're, we're calling them up to what does it look like to be an adult that worships the Lord? Um, what does it look like to be an adult who is man, passionate about the gospel? And so that's why they're going to be here with us. And then actually next week they're going to stay with us as well because we've got some missionaries in from Columbia, uh, Jonathan and Amanda Viney. So we want them to stay up here next week as well. So we hope you come back to hear uh, just what the Lord is doing in Colombia uh, through Jonathan and Amanda. They're uh, friends of ours that, and Rob and Christina's that we know from Lancaster in that area. So they'll be here next week to join us, okay? If you have a Bible this morning, I'd love for you to take it out uh, and turn in it to the book of Ruth. If you don't have one, there's one right in front of you. Uh, you can turn to it. It'll also be on the screen for you later on. But I think it's always helpful just to have God's Word in, in front of you. Uh, most of us interact better with it that way. And we are really going through a series here on the story of Ruth. And so um, we'll do all of chapter 2 today. Next week, again, the Vinings will be here with us. We're going to take about a three-week break from Ruth and just do an Advent uh, focus. And then we'll come back into Ruth in January, okay? Um, But if you've taken the time over the last uh, just few weeks as we've gone through this, it's, it's an easy book to read through. And uh, perhaps you're thinking, where is this going? We know the story. Um, my job is not to make the scriptures exciting for you, okay? The scriptures are exciting in and of themselves. Um, and so I would caution you if, you, if you feel like you are familiar with the story, like you've got it figured out, um, be open to what the Spirit is trying to teach you and to teach me through his word today. As we've just walked uh, this journey out, the journey of Ruth, right? We, we looked at just the first five verses in our first week together, and it really was the setup for the remainder of the story because the characters later on don't really matter if right, Naomi's husband is still alive, if Ruth is still married. The later people don't make any difference. But what we saw in the story of Ruth was really just dreams not coming to fruition. We saw death, uh, taking a husband and two, two sons, likely at an early age, certainly uh, before anyone in their family thought uh, they would leave this earth. And, and we see that in our lives too, don't we? We see things happen. We see dreams not be fulfilled. We see plans not come to fruition all the time in our own lives and the lives around us. And as followers of Christ, we have to wrestle with what do we do with that? Why does it happen? Well, we, we know that sin is present in our world, so therefore not every story will be a Disney fairy tale ending. And we know yet, as much as there's brokenness, there's a Savior, we've been singing about him all morning, who can redeem and restore and who is sovereign, who's working despite what we might think. And we have to remind ourselves when tragedy happens, or honestly, just when the frustration of a normal day takes place because of coworkers and just situations and, and such, 
man, well, how do we respond as followers of Christ? Well, I mean, James is pretty clear. We talked about our gospel community, right? We consider right, trials and we, we find joy in them because we know that, that the trials are actually meant to press us more towards Jesus. And so we can find joy in them because of that. Last week, we looked at the rest of chapter 2. And we're just reminded together that God does remain faithful to his people. And he often uses others in the process to draw us back to him. And that was just looking at Naomi's life and, and wondering what will happen. What, what was going to go on. And, and her wrestling and, and trying to tell her daughters-in-law, look, just go back home. Find new husbands. Live your life. Be fulfilled. My life is just going to be what it is. And she was planning on moving back home to Bethlehem. And, and we see one daughter-in-law, Orpah, decide to go back home. And now we see Ruth. He says, look, I'm going to go with you. He says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I will go where you go. I will die where you die. I will be buried there as well. I mean, you think you have some good friends who are pretty committed to you. I mean, I'm going to go where you go. That can feel creepy at times, right? But that was not her intent. Right? It was a passionate, convicted relationship. I'm going to die where you die. Like, we're going to be in this for the long haul. See, this big picture here that we, we keep seeing over and over through the story of Ruth right, is that God's people experience his sovereignty and his wisdom and his covenant and grace when we pursue Christ. We're going to keep seeing this kind of picture reveal itself through kindness and through redemption. Right? And it's often hard circumstances when they're mediated through the kindness of others that God miraculously uses broken people to step in with the hope of the gospel in our circumstances. And we trust that God is sovereign in all those things. As the stories progressed and we kind of got to this at the last part of last week, Naomi, Ruth, they left Moab, they returned back to Bethlehem. And we're told that when they come in, there's kind of a celebration. We know they've been gone for at least 10 years, if not more. And there's excitement to see Naomi, and they call her name, and she says, Look, don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara. The Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. We're told they return there right at the beginning of the barley harvest, and that's believed to be around April or May, a few weeks before the wheat harvest. And that's where we find ourselves here. We're going to read the whole uh, chapter 2 this morning. I was tempting just to ask someone to read it for me, but uh, if you're not ready, I, won't, I don't want to do that to you. So I'll read. You can follow along on the screen or in, in God's Word. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or, or leave this one. 
but keep close to my young women. Let your eye be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessel and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, although I am not one of your servants. And at the mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and, and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Beside, beside, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. God, as we just now spend a few moments in your word, just processing and and looking at and and thinking through, God, we pray that your spirit is present. Or would you reveal to us exactly what you intend for us to understand today and, and may we not just think of this as a simple story but would we see how you are constantly working in the lives of your people and we invite you to work in our lives lord in your name amen i think in some ways we all can identify uh, with naomi right life today might be different right her life certainly was and it wasn't what she fully anticipated what she once felt was good and right was now seemingly broken and incomplete. And I think we can understand that. Right? You and I have had moments where we've anticipated certain things to happen and, and we thought the road would go left and it went right and we thought it was going to go up and now all of a sudden we went down and we simply find ourselves left wondering why. Right? I think in many ways, right, many of us cannot understand losses that happen we don't understand really the full extent of situations that we experience. And so we can identify here with Naomi. And yet in all the brokenness that we see, we also see Ruth. Ruth is unique. She's chosen to remain close and faithful to Naomi. She had the freedom to return, to go home, to settle, 
to get established, to have her own family, but she opted out. And as that journey went and brought them back home to Bethlehem, right, it was likely that some tried to step in. Perhaps some tried to help her find shelter, help Naomi and Ruth figure out where to live, help them get settled. I remember when we moved to northern Maine, uh, Kim was pregnant with Landon, and the church family there, like, our, just the cabinets were full. I feel like I'd gone and bought, and a family just gave us a check for $1,000. We're like, listen, we were married for like six months. <laughs> we came just got to college. There's great temptation with that money, just so you know. But the caveat was being used it's just to get settled. Right? And that, the people that surrounded us, they supported us. We still remember that. That's probably what was going on here. Naomi comes back, and, and remember, there was excitement to see her. And so I'm sure there was some who just helped her stock the pantry and kind of settle in. But, but you know what happened after a while, at least to our family? Just life began to be normal. We, we, we found that we went to the grocery store, no one was there to buy our groceries for us. Right? We, we, just, we fell into routine, and I'm sure the same thing was happening here. Right? For Naomi and Ruth, right, what was their normal? Like, what, what was their routine? They were trying to figure out life without husbands. They're trying to figure out life in a, in a new place, maybe a little bit familiar for Naomi, but certainly new for Ruth. So they're left just to wonder, what's going to happen? So we have to remind ourselves, whenever we read stories in Scripture, Right? That when it deals with humanity, they're real people. They have feelings and thoughts and emotions. And, and there's temptation to kind of elevate the life of Naomi and to elevate the life of Ruth to some you know, pseudo-sainthood existence. But the reality is that they probably struggled. I mean, this is a culture where, where husbands and fathers provided to the greatest extent. Right, they were tasked with that, and they took that very seriously. And, and now we have widows trying to figure out what do we do. Feelings of emptiness must have been present. Again, perhaps we can relate. Right? There's thoughts that creep into our own minds, and we may have not lost everything, but perhaps we've experienced things beyond our understanding or beyond our comprehension Beyond our rationale, and frankly, if we could have picked the story, we would have gone a different way. Like those Choose Your Own Adventures books when you were growing up, right? Have you ever read those? Am I the only person, apparently, that had read this? Thank you, Alan, all right, and some others, okay? There were points in the story where it was like, if you want to see what happens in the cave, turn to page 40. To go safely home, turn to page 20. Like, and you just followed that out. And, and then all of a sudden you find yourself, oh, let's check the cave out now. I went home, but now I want to go see the cave. Right? That's kind of what's happening here. They're finding themselves at a crossroads. But what do we notice? The first big thing I want us to notice here today is this, that we do not see abandonment. The story of Naomi and Ruth is not a story of abandonment. Again, we know that in the time period of Naomi and Ruth, the Messiah Christ had not yet come. But there was a covenant people, a people of God, who trusted in him, living out their days, trusting in what they were doing to be obedient. They were living a life of faith. And what we saw back in, in uh, Ruth chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 was this. It says, But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal with 
kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, they lift up their voices, and they wept. Why does that verse matter to us right now? Well, that verse is laced with trust in the Lord. When Naomi says, may the Lord grant, deal with you kindly, and may the Lord grant that you might find rest. Naomi is not wavering in her trust in the Lord here. She's not wavering in what she believes to understand that the Lord can deliver kindness and rest to her, do, to her two daughter-in-laws. Seeing the experience of family loss, of being separated from friends in a foreign land, we never see Naomi abandoning the Lord and walking away from him. She may not understand the why, yet there seems to remain a constant trust. This is important for the follower of Christ. Because I, you will, it's not if, it's you will encounter suffering. If you trust in Christ, you have to swallow that pill. That you will encounter suffering on earth. It may not mean death. It may not mean great persecution for your faith. But you will experience good things being taken away or what would be seemingly bad things placed in your life. And you've got to figure out and wrestle through those situations and those circumstances and those relationships. And you have to, if you're faithfully following Christ, choose to be obedient to what he says. You may walk away from somebody. Because it's what God calls you to do when he says, look, flee sin, and that life is sin, and you've got to distance yourself from that. Guess what? That's a sense of suffering. That's emotionally painful. That is hard. I've told the story before, but for our family, the hardest choice that we've made yet as a married couple, we've married 13 years, was to leave northern Maine. We were there six and a half years. I was doing student ministry in the church. We loved it. We loved the people. They were our family. Our closest relative was six hours, but our parents were nine hours and 13 hours away. Oh, man, they, they were so dear to us. But we chose to leave because we clearly felt God's call for us to leave. And we, we said to people in conversations, look, we feel confident in this decision, and we have no idea of the clarity as the why. To some extent, that was suffering. Like, I remember just being miserable that entire drive and Kim and I on the phone back and forth with each other because I'm driving this truck or, and she's driving my truck, she's driving her vehicle. It was just awful. And guess what? When we arrived in Pennsylvania and I started a job, it didn't get better. It actually got worse. I hated my job. Rob worked there. That wasn't why I hated it, right? But... <laughs> well, that's a kind of suffering. Choosing to be obedient as God leads you, um, though there could be emotional turmoil, it could be hard relationships, it could be hard circumstances, that's choosing to be obedient to the Lord and to not abandon even when it seems that we don't understand what he's up to. We are gracious enough in our story to fast forward I don't even know how many years, two or so years, and we finally got our clarity. And we believe the Lord led us out of northern Maine really to bring us here. I'll be honest with you, I would have been eight and a half years into a job up there, 
the, in that time frame, the senior pastor had resigned. I probably would have had some interest to move up, and we'd had four kids in northern Maine. Can you come take a part-time church in Portsmouth, New Hampshire? Would not have probably been on my list of things to do, if I'm honest. We really believe the Lord allowed to move us here to bring us, move us from there to bring us here. But that's unique, isn't it? That we actually get to see the why. It's not, it's not a given in all of life's circumstances that we understand the why. And that's why we talked about a couple weeks ago that you may go through a circumstance in life that literally has very little to do with you. And what, what great pressure is there on parents? How do you react to situations? How do you respond to conflict? How do you work with turmoil within your marriage? I mean, you've got eyes watching you constantly. And yes, you, you hope that God uses all those things for really your sanctification process, but the greater impact could be on one of our kids just watching what's happening. See, in all this experience that goes on with Naomi, she does not abandon the Lord. And that's important. It's a valuable reminder for us to fervently press into Christ when we don't understand things. But the greater truth that we see is on the other side of things, that we also do not see the Lord abandon them. See, there's no indication at all in the story of Naomi and Ruth that the Lord had walked away. There's no indication that that God just says, you're on your own. There's a great temptation, I think, for us to rush to conclusion that God does not care whenever we feel like a situation is just spiraling out of control. Right? There's a temptation for us to say, where are you in all this, Lord? But what is that really founded on? Is it founded on God's word? Is it founded on our emotion? Is it founded on our just cognitive reasoning in the moment? Let me list out just some passages for you. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. This is God talking to Moses as, as they're about to enter into the promised land that Moses himself would never see. And what do we see? Look, be strong, courageous. Well, why? Be men. Be, be like the Spartans that will come later on, right? The, the, just, this great warrior. No, that's not why actually you're supposed to be strong and courageous. It says why. Well, because the Lord's going to go with you. Later on in Matthew, we hear Jesus say, Look, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe all that I command you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So before we were really fast to say this whole idea that, that God would, would, would not forsake them, it's just Old Testament thought. Well, now we're seeing Jesus himself say, Look, I'm going to be with you. Like, I'm, I'm going to walk with you, I'm not, I'm not going to abandon you. As you make disciples, as, as you're teaching and you're developing relationships and you want to see people come to Christ, so you're praying fervently for them, man, I'm going to be with you. And not just when you sense it or when you feel like it, man, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. Jesus' words of comfort and encouragement are here because disciple-making is hard. Listen, if, if you are not struggling with the brokenness of a world, you've got to pray for a broken heart. And you've got to pray that God will give you opportunity. It might be he's not calling you to, to stand and do what I do. That's, that, that's perfectly fine. But what has he gifted you and where has he placed you? He's, he's calling all of us to make disciples. 
before you get overwhelmed in your own mind of how complicated and hard it is and awkward in relationships, look, what does Jesus just tell us? Look, I am with you always. He's not going to abandon you when you're his. Later on, the writer of Hebrews says this in verses 5 and 6, chapter 13. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? See, the author of Hebrews here in this section of 13, he just gets through a little bit list of things of just life. Talks about marriage and love and money and how they can distract us and draw our attention. But he brings us back to the words of Jesus, right? I will never leave you or forsake you. And because Jesus will never abandon you when you're his, then we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Jesus himself said, don't fear those who kill the body. Rather, those fear that who can divide the soul. See, despite the thoughts that that you and I might have, and despite the leadings of our emotions, which may want to convince us of something, when we are Christ, we are fully His. See, the God of the Bible is faithful. How can we possibly say that? We just looked at it in Deuteronomy, in Matthew, and in Hebrews. God's faithfulness is not an Old Testament context. It continues to be true today. See, from culture's perspective, Naomi probably had every right to walk away from God. It wasn't even her, no, it wasn't Naomi's God. It wasn't even Ruth's God. But I'm sure, right? Do you remember Job? You ever the story of Job or just heard the story of Job? Remember his wife? What did she say? What's her great advice? Curse God and die. That's not good advice. And some, I'm sure, in Naomi's time would have, have thought, look, curse God, walk away. He's taken it all from you. And there, again, we're probably some encouraged her this way. But listen, despite what some may have said, the God of the Bible never walked away from her. He did not forget about her. God never forgot about Naomi. He went to Moab. He was there. He was present. As she came back to Bethlehem, he was there. He was present. And the same thing is true for us. As you and I just experience life, when we are in Christ, he is with us. He remains faithful even when we struggle. He is faithful. And even when we waver, he welcomes us when we return like those who welcome Naomi back. See, what we find here in chapter 2 is the attempt of two women trying just to work through life, trying to understand their circumstance, trying to live in their present reality, but not willing to abandon the Lord or each other, but rather seeing the hand of God at work within their confusing circumstance. All of that sets up this coming interaction with Boaz. If you kind of recap what we read through, right? They need food. 
And so Ruth, we assume, is younger than Naomi. He says, look, I'm going to go to glean in this field. And they know a relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. This was Boaz. And they're hoping just to find favor there. And so Ruth goes to glean. What is gleaning? It's just collecting leftover crops after the field's been harvested. And she's out, and she's gleaning, and, and she's doing the work the best that she possibly can. And, and then Boaz comes and, and talks to one of his workers in charge of the reapers and said, who is this? And all of a sudden, Boaz learns her story. It's interesting to me that, she, that he asks who she is instead of just simply saying, what, what is she doing here? He asks, who is that? That's not a normal question to ask of a man of Boaz in his situation. And I believe the Lord stirs him to ask that question, to learn of her story before she jumps to a conclu- before he jumps to a conclusion. And then in verse 8, we begin to see that Boaz engages her in conversation. And then he gives her some instruction and says, look, glean only in this field. Why does he say that? Because, because he can take care of her that way. See that Boaz has a heart for her. Glean where you can be protected. Glean where if you're thirsty you can get water. Where you can be provided for. And Ruth asks Boaz, why are you showing me this kindness? You don't even know me. And his response is that he's heard her story. He's heard her care and her faithfulness to Naomi. And then there's verses 12 and 13. This is where we're going to spend the remainder of our time. Boaz says this, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. See, Boaz recognizes the heart of Ruth to provide for Naomi. And he makes this connection between Ruth's life and actions, right, and her heart to provide. Listen, there's a fantastic connection here for us. It's fantastic when we look and we see that, that Ruth has a tremendous dependency on God to provide. Boaz tells us that when he says, Right? under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth has made Naomi's God her God. He's trusting, she's trusting in his faithfulness. And yes, she's doing the work. She, there's, there's times where we can only sit back and pray that God would give relief from a situation and from a circumstance, but there are times where we pray and we do the work. Here, Ruth is doing the work, and Boaz is making a connection with her willingness, but yet her dependency upon God for refuge and provision. As the rest of chapter 2 kind of processes out, we see Boaz continue to show this kindness to Ruth. He invites her to a meal. He instructs the young man in charge of these reapers, look, let, let Ruth glean among the sheaves, not just the scraps. Let her get things that are good. Also, as you're going, pull out bundles and just leave it. And let Ruth pick that up. See, Boaz continues in this mercy that he's showing Ruth and also showing Naomi. Now again, this is not a story that Disney wrote for us. 
And it's also not a model in the sense that, that all of our situations in life, there will be a Boaz to rescue us from them. Because not all stories on broken earth end in a love story like this one seems to be. But I want us to take notice of that important phrase back in verse 13. When Ruth said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. See, Ruth's response to the treatment of Boaz is one of amazement at his kindness. Boaz has comforted her. He's spoken kindly to her. He's provided for her. See, essentially, Ruth is just shocked that she, a stranger, a foreigner, would receive such benefits from one like Boaz. Church, there's an important parallel here for us. This is what it's like for those who have placed their hope and trust in Jesus. See, we are His. We are like Ruth. We who don't deserve the benefits of being known by the king are given full rights as if we were his children. I think that times there's temptation for us to think of ourselves and our humanity just as second-class citizens. Like, God, we're not worthy of you. We can never measure up. We can't, we can't do enough. And if you conclude those statements, you're right, you're right, you're right, and you're thinking biblically. See, we, we can't do enough to earn salvation. We can't be good enough to be a true son of the king. But if we have an authentic faith in Christ, then we are fully God's. Our relationship, our status as children of God, we are saved And it's not dependent upon how amazing we are. It's fully rooted in the grace known to us and given to us by God, our Heavenly Father, a favor that we did not deserve to begin with. You see, there's no reason, truly no true reason, Boaz was not obligated to do this for Ruth. Later on, we see that there's a relationship, there's a connection, and the rest of the story will play itself out. But there's not necessarily an obligation specifically to say, look, don't glean anywhere else. Glean only in my field, and I'm going to provide protection and water for you. No, Boaz was lavish in what he gave. And when we can understand that type of grace, we then begin to live in appreciation of it. See, our lives are to be shaped and formed by not our desires as we go in Christ, but the desires that God would have for us. We're not told, but I'm guessing that Ruth didn't just start to go ahead of the harvesters and take whatever she wanted. Right? Ruth didn't decide to go in the, in the next field ahead and say, you know, I'm going to beat the crowd. I'm going to do my own thing. But she was shaped, rather, by the grace shown to her from Boaz and then lived in appreciation of that. See, the story of Ruth should cause us all just to stop for a moment. It should cause us to pause and ask ourselves, how do we respond to the grace that God has shown us? If we have trusted in Christ as our Savior, if that is our claim, how are we living in response to that? Do we live our lives as worship back to the Lord? Or are we living our lives for our glory and our gain 
just hopeful that at the end our salvation will win out over all other things? Do we strive to live for God's glory? Do we say yes to the Spirit's leading? I don't know about you, but my tradition that I grew up in was very conservative. And the idea of the the Spirit leading was something that you you can't deny because the Bible said it, but you just don't talk about it. But I believe that God calls and he, and he moves by a lead of the Spirit. Right? Peter preached in Acts 2, repent and you will receive the Spirit. So we take confidence that the follower of Jesus has the Holy Spirit within us. It's working. It's leading. It's prompting. But I wonder, do we say yes to it like we should? Do we acknowledge the Spirit's presence? And before in your brain you kind of painted this big charismatic landscape. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about when God presses a name in your mind in a situation they're experiencing, you think, pray about that, and then check in on them. Or do you think, that was random. There's, as a believer, there's a way to filter through even our own thoughts. How is Jesus at work right now? When we get to a circumstance, when we experience suffering, God, what are you trying to show to reveal more of yourself or reveal about me through this? It's asking God questions like that. Being led by the Spirit, saying yes to the Spirit and no to sin. I think we have to ask ourselves too, are we compassionate to those around us as God was towards us in Christ and as Boaz was as an example towards Ruth. Do we live with compassion? Right? Is love a mark of our lives? And we're not talking about this love with strings attached. And I'm not talking about this, this weird kind of over-the-top love that, that makes people feel uncomfortable. But just love where our heart's desire is to see good things happen. Love that, that when we hear of a need, our thought is, well, how can I help with this? I mean, love for the, for the believer just is to be one of the primary identifying fruits and marks of their lives. And so we're proud New Englanders, right? But, but cynicism and love typically conflict each other. And I'm, and I'm cynical and sarcastic, and, and so that's, that's a challenge for me. But at some point, I can't just say, well, it's who I am, it's where I was raised, and it's where I was born with. At some point, God needs to say to my life, man, Spirit, I want you to have the win on this one. See, as, as Ruth lived in appreciation and gratitude towards Boaz, I think that we have got to evaluate our lives as an example as well. And I think we've got to see, do we live with gratitude Not to those around us necessarily, but do we live with gratitude to Christ for the hope that we have? Are we a grateful people because of the gospel? Are we grateful, not for the things we have, not for the things that God has provided? Listen, those are blessings. We had a conversation one night in our house, right? I didn't ask Christmas to talk about it anyway. Um, right? And we're talking about just what do we view as rights? Like what is a right that someone might have? 
And you start thinking about that. And we certainly can allow our Western culture to, to define what maybe we think is a humanistic right. But is shelter a right? Not governmentally speaking. But is it a human right or is it a blessing? Is a car a right or is it a blessing? Is food a right or is it a blessing? Now, don't mix up the word need in there, okay, because we need food. Shelter is very helpful to our sustenance and sustainability in life, right? But, But what is it that we have in life, and do we see these things and consider these things as blessings? See, I think Ruth, again, lived her life out in appreciation to Boaz in church. We have to see the connection here that we're called to live a life of gratitude to the Lord. First, because of the gospel. Because quite frankly, like Job, everything could be taken away. And you'd have to wrestle with a real-life conversation with the Lord about what you think is a right and what perhaps is just a blessing. My hope is that, not just for us alone, but for all who follow Christ, that we would strive to be walking and living lives that are a testimony to the grace that God has given to us. And we see that, that grace that he's shown us. And we, we feel convicted and compelled to impart that to our neighbor and our friends and our families. That we would be a people who, that show grace even when it's hard. That we would love authentically. And that we would pray for others to know the hope of Christ. Ruth life from this point on is lived in response to the work of Boaz. And we get the impression that she knows no other way than to live in response to that. The call for the follower of Christ is to live in response to the gospel. It is not a convenient add-on to your already existing life. It isn't just a simple thing we just claim and then move on as if nothing is different. When we've trusted in Christ, our entire life is then lived out in response to the grace and the love, the compassion, the forgiveness, the redemption, and the restoration that's found in Jesus. I can tell you this, it is hard. It grinds against the desires that we have at times. But what it allows us to do is to see our lives to be lived as an offering poured back to a God who loved us so generously to give us Christ. My prayer is that we would have hearts that live like this, minds that think like this, and that break for others to also know their Heavenly Father. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we just, just wrestle and think through how we live our lives truly in response to the gospel, if we claim Christ today, Lord, we ask that your spirit would just do the work that it needs to do. If you're called to change us, to to change circumstances, change situations, that we might better uh, represent Christ. And Lord, 
by your strength to do that. And Father, we will trust that what you have began, you will call to completion. We will trust that you will always be with us to the end of the age. Amen. We're going to take some time this morning to celebrate communion together. And uh, if you are uh, visiting, we would invite you, if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, in a few moments to come and partake. Uh, and if you have not trusted in Christ yet, we ask that you just sit in your, in your seat and consider what that might mean to your life. <clears throat> to, to know your Savior and to, to know your Creator and to live in response to that. But God does caution us through his word that we're to evaluate our hearts and to evaluate our minds before we come and take of the bread and the cup. To not take it flippantly because we are remembering the sacrifice that went to the cross on our behalf. And so God says, look, don't take it lightly. Like what Jesus says when he's with his disciples in the upper room before the cross, he says, this is my body broken for you as often as you do this in remembrance of me. And he later on says, the cup, it's my blood being poured out for you. Do this often in remembrance of me. So today we remember that honestly without the cross, uh, we're lost in our sin. But it doesn't stop there. Because we always talk about this, man, we celebrate this morning through communion as well. We celebrate and we are in Christ. That blood has covered our sin. That God will work in us. That what he has began, he will complete. That he does not abandon his sheep. And so we're going to sing a song and and the band will begin. And we just invite you to to, to be in your seat and and spend time with the Lord. If you need to confess and repent and do that. And when you feel ready as the song is going on, just come and take a piece of bread and a cup and dip and eat.